On this episode of Designed for Good, we're in conversation with Anjal Malhotra, oral historian, writer, and artist based out of New Delhi. Anjal is the author of Remnants of a Separation, a history of the partition through material memory. How does recollection change when it's through the medium of an old object? Well, I think that first we have to understand what the object means for people. If it is an heirloom or an object of obvious value, then we um, then we talk about it with that kind of respect and that kind of value. So say it is a monetarily valuable object. Mm-hmm. You are always going to present it to someone with that kind of esteem. But say the heirloom is, um, and I'm talking about heirloom specifically because those are the kinds of objects I deal with, mundane heirloom, say it's a pen or a notebook. Mm-hmm. It may not get that kind of uh, importance that it deserves until the importance is deposited into it. Because the object is essentially um, mute. It cannot speak, it has no feelings. So the only time an object becomes precious is when we deposit feelings into it, like a receptacle. So I think that to use the object as a means of recollection is an interesting pathway, particularly if you are trying to arrive at an event of trauma. And this is really why I use the object to study partition is because to ask someone about partition just straight up is a is still a bit, um, I don't know, It the word partition is so heavy. To utter it, to ask about it, it automatically means something. So to sit with someone, which is already a privilege, to sit with someone and say, oh, tell me about partition, it must have been horrible for you. That's, it's a bit disrespectful, but it's also a bit brash. But to use the object, say you have pen or a ring or even a newspaper and you say oh how, how did you carry this across and how is this connected to your life before partition and then they tell you not just about partition but they tell you about life before partition which is really what you're trying to get at you're trying to understand the social ethnography of a place and how it was ruptured by a particular event right so i use the object as a catalyst because i think it's a bit easier to arrive at a certain conversation that might otherwise be very traumatic and the minute you start talking about things people think you're not talking about themselves because their attention is diverted to the thing and while you've been researching and speaking with people what in your opinion is the most difficult part about speaking to somebody about an event that brings back hurtful memories I think the hardest thing is asking the unaskable questions. So one thing I always do is um, try and gain a little bit of insight into briefly what the person went through during partition. And that can be where they came from, where they migrated to, which also gives me a way to research that area first. So my questions are a lot more specific uh, than just going in with a vague random questionnaire. Uh, But I think that there are many unaskables during partition and as a young woman researcher who is often of another ethnicity, nationality, religion, culture, there are many things you have to keep in mind. 
so the biggest fear is that you may offend someone you may disrespect the very vulnerable memory that they have agreed to divulge to you but i think that you have to take that chance always like the unaskable question i've thought about this a lot in the unaskable questions one of two things can happen either you get rejected straight up and you're like bus i don't want to go there because it's too hurtful in which case either it's really a no or you may be visited at some point later but the other thing is you might just get an answer and that's a chance you always have to take because it tells you your boundary and the thing with people is that the more you talk to them the more comfortable you become with them particularly older people you realize that all they want is for someone to listen to them and it's really not so difficult because we as a millennial i'm a millennial me coming from a millennial generation have realized that one thing that we have shared over the last last generation is to know how to listen because we in our head we are always thinking of what we will say next and to listen means to slow your thoughts down to perceive what that person is saying to understand their perspective and that is the definition of empathy to be able to understand what someone is going to put yourself in their position so you are trying to have an empathetic experience with someone not a sympathetic experience because this is not regardless of the trauma they've gone through you're not trying to pity their predicament you're just trying to understand what it felt like so i think that maybe that is the most difficult thing like at times i feel like when i knew someone had either lost their family or had just gone through very difficult circumstances to migrate across i was always very hesitant on saying okay where is my threshold but i don't ever recall receding from the question i think if there were like long pauses or they had very emotional um very emotional experiences i would think that maybe okay this is too much but i don't think i never did not get an answer from them it may have taken time but i always got some something yeah and do you think uh, your area of interest um you know research writing and now expertise is influenced by the way you were raised like was storytelling and history valued in your home is that something that has influenced you as an artist yeah i wish i could say yes uh, but you know it's i mean it's funny that you say that because maybe um it wasn't done in such obvious ways like i i don't ever remember being told a bedtime story mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is something i keep returning to because my family owns a bookshop mm-hmm. i would imagine that yeah like that's and yet right and yet there were books everywhere and i was drawn to them most naturally mm-hmm. but i think it is um the way that i have been drawn to my subject matter is probably because i wasn't told anything as a kid and i came to a point where i realized that what we had studied in india about partition and i had studied this as a, as a child in school without realizing that that history belonged to me it seemed like words on a page rather than a legacy that i belong to maybe that's the way in which we are taught history in the public school curriculum i don't know but it was very strange because all four of my grandparents were affected by partition 
And yet when I studied history from grade six to grade 12, because I took it all the way, there was never a point in my mind where I was like, I should ask about this at home. Because it wasn't, um, the onus of the event wasn't given on me. Whereas many years later, when I encountered two mundane objects, I felt such a rush to think that, my God, someone I knew was affected by this event. And I think that everyone arrives at their moment when they arrive. So it's a bit unfair to say that I never thought about it before because well, look at me now. I'm immersed in it every day. But I think that um, projects like this also emerge from within. They need a push. And my push was the fact that if I don't know anything, then the generation after me will know even less. Whether it is loss of language, loss of history, loss of ancestor, and of course, not to mention the fact that we are separated by this impenetrable, highly militarized border, which means that a lot of displaced families will never get to see where they are from. So, it's like there's no closure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, now you can see things on YouTube. Like, I know my grandmother always looks at Derai Smile Khan on YouTube, but imagine the joy yeah. she would have felt if she, if she if went she back. Yeah, but I think, going back to your question, I don't remember the word partition being uttered ever in my childhood or um, because they always just talked about like village life almost. Mm -hmm. You know, me having been born and raised in Delhi, like I'm, I'm a city person. Mm -hmm. And so village life was always very like picturesque and very mm -hmm. beautiful, but I'd never imagined it to be Pakistan ever. Yeah. That's interesting. And two things that I find very interesting is that um, you're a printmaker and an artist also, like a visual oh, um, artist. <laughs> those words, and, I hardly ever hear those words anymore. But it's the truth. <laughs> um, and I just want to know how the visual medium um, helps with your writing process because you've also mentioned that you're a method writer, which is... I'm just imagining how uh, how that would, like what the process is like to be a method writer. So, I mean, I don't know if this word method writing is actually something, it's just something, it's it's not a, I don't know if it's like a, it's a term, but in my yeah, head, this, well, this is what it is, right? If I have arrived at words through the mm -hmm. means of, which means that already mm -hmm. used to be right? Mm -hmm. A black to me, because I'm a printmaker and printmakers, rely they live on gradient they live on on texture um i already know that a black is not just black and darkness is not just darkness <clears throat> so when i'm looking at a scene and this i think comes through in remnants quite well when you're when i'm sitting with someone of course i'm listening to them and my recorder is recording but what i'm also trying to grasp is the changing of the light mm. the color of their clothes um how their voice moves from certain languages to other languages when they're talking about certain things, how the excitement shows, when the excitement shows. So I think that when we are trained as artists, we are always trained to look for visual cues because you always have to show someone something. You have to show it visually, so you have yeah. to notice it visually. Mm -hmm. um, in, in writing, you can get away with a lot because you're putting down everything. And it's the exactitude of your language is what gets your reader immersed in your landscape. But I think that 
method writing. So, and I only say this because now the book I'm working on has so many, the book I finished, in fact, the second book, had so many different elements from calligraphy to World War One to partition that I had to understand, I had to understand everything because if I didn't understand it, then my reader would not understand it. So whether that meant taking calligraphy classes, learning how to speak Urdu, um, learning about all the flowers in the city to write about them better. I feel, and this is the thing, these are the tropes that I have collected being a historian, I guess, that I need to know all the information before I can impart some of the information, mm-hmm. which means living the information as it is. You know, I would imagine that like uh, being a writer and your schedule and workspace um is a space of solitude and you work by yourself. So in this current situation, do you feel like um, things have changed for you? Is it harder for you to create? Do you force yourself to do it now that there's like an impending stress? Or um, do you just like take each day as it comes? Well, I'm not a very social person (laughs) to begin with. Um, If I'm being completely honest, I have... uh, it's very hard for me to uh, not to make friends, but just be like overtly social. Mm-hmm. So I guess the occupation I've chosen works for me because it is uh, it is a solitary practice. But nothing has really changed in the schedule. Nothing has really changed in the schedule um, because I was working on a manuscript before the lockdown happened and during the lockdown I finished the manuscript. But what I have wondered a lot in finishing the manuscript, so I think I wrote like five or six chapters uh, post lockdown. I wondered if the tone of, of the story changed because of the circumstances we were in. Not the story itself because I always knew how it was going to end. Yeah. But yeah. maybe whether the tone was just a little bit sadder than I had expected it to be. Okay. And I think that maybe this is just something very intrinsic because I feel it. So I'm thinking whether my writing will reflect it. But I did wonder this many times whether the environment was seeping into my my brain because, you know, to say that I'm not a social person and I don't go out a lot is one thing, but to be ordered not to go out, or to be forbidden to go out, I think is something that everyone is uh, is grappling with. Um. I don't know. I guess we'll have to see how it uh, how it reads. But personally, I don't think a lot for me has changed. Uh, you know, another thing I wanted to ask um, is that overseas, Indians, mm-hmm. Pakistanis, and Bangladeshis, our identities are very. Um, you know, we're trying trying our best to find similarities, and we're overlooking differences, and we're all sort of considered desi. But as soon as you come back to the subcontinent, like differences and borders are more pronounced. And suddenly you're Indian and Pakistani and Bangladeshi. And maybe it has to do with geography. But why is it that even like socially, the differences are more pronounced? I wish I had uh, an answer for you about because this is something that I think we all think about it when we're faced with it. Um I, I remember when I was in college in Canada and I encountered a Pakistani person. I think the shock about how similar they were to me 
I feel almost small and silly thinking about that now. You know, because I encountered them and I thought, oh my God, but we speak the same language and we look the same and we eat the same food. And then I think going to Pakistan several times to do research also has really um, illuminated that for me. I don't know why we are so divisive when it comes to being on home turf. But I'll tell you this much, that from my experience, if you can manage to shed some of that, then, then you'll be a lot richer for it because unlearning is very, very hard. It's really hard, whether it is like unlearning of religion or communities or bias that you didn't know you had about something. Um, and when you're faced with that, you have two choices. One is to really exert it and the other is to shed it or attempt to shed it at least. And over the last couple of years of doing this kind of work across the subcontinent, I have had to shed a lot of things that I didn't even know I possessed. And if we can all try to do that, then I think we are a little bit closer to seeing that borders don't matter as much when it comes to the personal. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, you've also spoken about how our generation is a little far removed or mm. just like quite far removed from the partition. Um, does that, in your opinion, you know, make a little more room for peace and for a friendlier future? But just because we're a little far removed and our grandparents or parents have a more raw and like fresher memory of it? As I perceived it during field research, the generation that lived through partition is obviously very close to it. Mm -hmm. And they lived through something very turbulent and they had to normalize that thing pretty fast, which meant that um, they had to get on with life. They had to get a job, they had to feed their families. They were often living in camps or very makeshift situations. And they didn't have the luxury of time to dwell over what they had been through, which meant that partition as an event, a dislocating event, had to be normalized pretty fast in public memory which also meant that the private memory of partition got buried pretty deep inside people because it just didn't have a chance to surface. Now, the second generation after that, which is your and my parents' generation, maybe they saw their parents struggling to make a better life. I don't know. Uh, maybe they saw partition as something that had broken their parents or something that they had to uh, remake after. So they never asked questions. For as long as I know, I have asked more questions than any of my family members combined. Which meant that the second generation also lived with that kind of heaviness. Now, with us, we have the gift of the internet. Which means that our curiosity can be fueled by a simple Google search. And it's really your mind opens up when you see things on the internet and realize that this land that you imagine to be this this perceived enemy land is actually pretty similar looking to yours. And people look pretty similar and they do similar things and they eat similar food and they speak the same language. And you may be talking to one on, say, Instagram or Twitter and you might not even realize it. Right? So I think that in terms of knowledge, in terms of the visual landscape, we have access to so much. So, um, though we have distance from the event, 
I wouldn't say that we don't feel that pain because generational pain is real and we can inherit it. But I do think that we are in a very interesting circumstance connecting it back to your earlier question to build peace building initiatives. Right? I don't think that our parents or our grandparents would have ever been able to come this close to something so um, borderless. Because it meant something. Like that border was so fortified. It meant something. You know, something that I've been so curious about ever since I mm. read Remnants and, you know, I've been just like looking at your work and even uh, with the Museum of Material Memory. What was it like visiting Lahore for the first time? And is it really Delhi's twin city? If you could just describe your first experience um, as somebody maybe who hasn't, who hadn't been to Pakistan before, but only heard and been curious about it. And as you like walked into the city of Lahore and what it felt like. I wish that I could experience it for the first time again. Um, you know, Lahore really truly is Delhi's twin city. I mean, it was built that way, not just by the British, but also the Mughal, uh, yeah, also the Mughals. And you see it in the architecture, of course. But it was very surreal because, um, I mean, I don't really know what I was expecting. I think that because I had so much research in India, about partition where so many people had mentioned the city Lahore not only because they lived there but because it was also the medical capital it was the educational capital people went there for a better life it was um, you know that there, there were so many English institutions there it, it meant something to go there uh, and of course two of my grandparents were from there so I feel like I had accumulated so many personal experiences of Lahore that when I was there, it truly felt like a homecoming. And even now, I mean, it was really strange because sometimes when you're on Mal Road, I swear I thought I was on Lodi Road in Delhi. And when we were turning for the Gymkhana in Pakistan, I was like, yeah, we're going to turn for the IIC now. Because they're so similar. They are really, really similar. I can't explain it. But in my head right now, I have a schematic map of the city of Lahore because I traveled back and forth across the city so much that it really like it really embedded itself onto me. But I think that this is this is the thing, and I've and I've introspected on this a lot. Mm. When you go to a place where you don't know what to expect, there are there are many things obviously going through people's minds. But particularly if it's a place where people have told you you'll have this, you'll have that. Um, you know, you have to be concerned about this. And you're an Indian in Pakistan and all these things. But if you go with a very open heart and a very open perspective, and you don't have limitations on what you may feel, then the city will completely embrace you. But if you go with apprehension and you say, oh, I don't have to do this and I don't have to do that and I have to be careful of this, well, then you're not going to have such a good experience because you're going to be blocked in by all these limitations. I think that when I went to Lahore, my purpose was of course to meet people but to also experience the kind of life that my grandparents had experienced yeah. and you had to be completely open for that and now i think about it i was 24 years old and it i was fearless and now I, i'm scared of everything <laughs> you know uh, so many years have passed but that first trip i was just 
there was not a single shred of fear in my mind about anything and you know this has to do a lot and i have to put this on record the people are so warm they are so warm and they are so embracing of you or khater dhari mehman nawazi matlab it means something and they want to know more about india this very humorous anecdote um i was staying in the lohar jamkhana and um, i decided to go to the salon to get my nails done um and i'm sitting there and this woman is filing my nails and we are talking and speaking in urdu and i think that when you're not from a place like people can tell you're not from there despite how good your language is i thought so it worked like how it was in bombay sorry to cut you off when you say uh, boss and they think that oh you're from bombay exactly <laughs> you hit it on the head because she said ki um aap karachi se hain so it's exactly like delhi bombay yeah and i was like but my language is more like delhi than bombay like why am i getting and this is also the difference between lahore and karachi anyway it's very similar to the delhi bombay conflict so um she asked me if i'm from karachi and i said no no i'm from delhi and so she drops my hand and she said ki aap bharat se hain and i was thinking to myself that bharat because it's just not a word that we use in india and i said ki ha main bharat se hu and then she went on to like she didn't want to know about borders and military and kashmir and india pakistan she didn't care about any of that her concerns are very simple aap hamari tarah kapde kyu pehnte hain aapke gehne kahan pe hain because they watch indian serials uh aap hamari zuban kaise bolte hain aur aapke ghar mein pyaaz kitne ka hai aap kaisa kaisa aloo banate hain aap kitne din gosht khate hain these are the things that she was concerned about and i just thought to myself my god isn't this really a depiction of what the common person thinks ki wo kitna meat khate hain ya wo kitna vegetable khate hain wo vegetarian hai ki nahi har roz saree pehnte hain ki nahi it it was i mean i don't know how to explain it but it felt like such a huge like sort of relief and also it was so comical and i was just sitting there with my hands being like you think i'm from karachi you know it was wonderful but i have to say like i love the people of lahore i love it and not just lahore like i've been to karachi as well the people are so warm and when you go to markets and you tell people ki main india se hu they want to know about your life and they they want to say ki aapne le jao aur kaisa laga aapko ye they want to talk they want to know and it has nothing to do with politics it is really just human behavior and curiosity and and i wish that other people could realize that so when you came back were your uh, grandparents really excited to hear about your experience yeah. like their grandchild like, goes to their- 100% i think that out of all the like a lot of people had told me ki tumhe yahan ye hoga wo hoga tum you know all these horrible things they put in my my head but my immediate family was like tumhe itna maza aayega tum yahan jana tum wahan jana my parents had also been to pakistan for business so like you know they, they, there was all positivity at home and then um, my my grandmother who is from chalmi darwaza in uh, the wall city of lahore her brother had to he's very eccentric he had told me uh, ki tum 
you go to an arkali and you go to this one shop in an arkali which i'm telling you will still be there and you go get me a peshavari chappal and i told him nana like it's you know like 67 years have passed i feel like some things might have changed he goes no 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 and he was so adamant no 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 you must go there sure enough believe it or not that store was there wow and i went there i had a amazing conversation with the with the owner like i had a cup of chai i told him about my nana i bought the peshavari chappal i gave it to him also so I, i don't know i think that everyone was they were very curious about what i had seen but i think that um i mean this is also the kind of person i am and the purpose that i was going there for is to talk to people and so i'm maybe somebody else in my position a young woman in my position may have not say for example spoken to the uh, peshavari chappal man maybe they would have just like bought the chappal and gone but i was very curious ki ye itne saal kaise kaise aaye yahan pe and mere nana ne mujhe kaha and i know it's over there and i need to you know i need to understand the history so i think the curiosity for the lay person that was like my mission i wanted to speak to everyone even when uh, i was in shahalmi this is the second time that i went in 2018 i was with a friend of mine kumail hasan who knows the city pretty well and we were trying to find my grandmother's house but at the time i didn't realize that her house was in an area that had completely burnt down in june 1947 so the house just wasn't there and i is a completely futile practice to be walking around the wall city finding that house but when you walk around the same place for a number of hours people start to recognize you and this they start to see that look on your face and that look only means main bharat se aayi hu aur mujhe apna ghar dhoondna hai so you know after a while it was like you've come from india you're searching for your home and i don't know i, I just i i can hear their voices i can see that i can see everything right now you know but I don't know I just think that um to understand a land and its people you have to be open to them you have to nobody is going to invite you in if you have preconceived notions and closed doors about them you have to be more open minded than that which is which is what I mean you have to shed so many of the biases that you didn't even know you had yeah for sure for sure and what you're saying is so valuable because you know i know so many people in my own family i feel that you have these inhibitions like you have these you know preconceived notions about what it may be and uh, how you must um, have an opinion about it that you're just so close minded about it and you you know don't end up realizing that they're all just people and what we're actually dealing with is like layers and layers of like and kind of toxic politics and um you know decisions that were made for us that we really didn't have much of a say in i guess um and which is what i wanted to also kind of know as somebody who's creative do you feel like artistic collaboration within the sub subcontinent is um is it in a good place and are you happy with where it is and if you could just speak a little bit about that well there are only so many things you can do digitally let's just say that mm-hmm. uh, i wish that there was a way that the border was a little bit lax for people particularly creative people in say literature or film or music mm-hmm. that wanted to collaborate 
on the other side of the border, wanted to go there, wanted to get a feel of the land. Um, and I think about this a lot. Wouldn't it be great if we could just ease visa control a little bit? Um, because, yeah, I mean, there's only so much you can do online. There is only so much. I mean, I know that the internet is vast and it's kind of endless, but at the same time, there's nothing really like going to a place, discovering it and creating something from scratch with someone from there. And I think this is where um, abroad, it's, it's really helpful actually, because you're with the person or with the people you want to collaborate with and you, you do see a kind of menage of cultures there. And I saw it in my own uh, BFA and MFA programs. I've seen it with other people as well. When borders don't inhibit you, the, the creative space becomes a lot more open and you become a lot less um, possessive of your geography somehow. It, it, it happens quite naturally that the minute you leave the subcontinent area where the borders are so militarized, you become a lot more open to sharing that geography with other people. Yeah. And so my well, story becomes our story pretty fast. And my history becomes our history. Right? And some pain that my family has experienced becomes a shared pain that people across the border have also experienced. Do you think one can learn to appreciate history and stories of the past or is it something that's inherent? And I'm only asking this because I'm sure lots of people reach out to you now, you know, younger people saying that I have never considered this to be something that would interest me. And now I feel like I'm learning so much about my own family, my own heritage and culture. And I've found in, like some sort of interest in this. And so do you feel like it's inherent or something that can be learned? I think that going by my own example, it has to be something that you develop an interest in. Um, unless, of course, you're someone who's lucky enough to be told stories of the past since you're a child. Mm -hmm. right? um, but I think that um, I always advocate for uh, asking questions at home because it means that you're building an organic archive of your family history rather than a scholar like me coming in asking and you know sometimes that is a good thing because it's easier to speak to strangers than speaking to your family and people do end up opening a lot more to someone like me even when the family is sitting around just because um just the burden of family history is not there so you can ask a lot more openly and you can tell a lot more openly too but i do think that rather than the formality of having a scholar come in and ask questions if over a number of years you have asked the same questions and you, you're the owner of that history, it belongs to you and you are creating an organic archive. And I think this is one thing that Indians are really not good at doing is keeping archives, family archives, because they think it to be too mundane. Right? Um, I always keep thinking when partition happens, and if there were oral historians, if there were people going around asking questions about how people felt at that time, we would have been so different. Why is it that Holocaust survivors take onus of that story, but partition victims still feel victimized even 70 years later, we lost this, we lost that. This is the difference in, in, in semantics and it means something. A Holocaust survivor, partition victim, really in the semantics 
the psych the psychology of the event is is trapped there you have survived partition you have emerged you have become an entrepreneur you have built your family and maybe some people are not lucky enough to have done that but still you you got out alive and i'm not equating holocaust and partition because they are two very different things and the only comparative between them is that the closeness of time period but i think that we really need to reevaluate the way the way we perceive stories is that we need to tell these stories and we need to take possession of these stories whether you are a victim or a perpetrator or anything would you also tell me a little bit about your second book and um has your approach to research changed this time around or is it easy yeah completely i mean i can't tell you a lot about it yet but i can tell you that it's fiction okay uh which is very different for me because um i when working on the first book there were so many tropes i had to develop because i was working with something as unreliable as memory and when you're i guess when you're recording someone's memory and you're you're putting it down as as oral history oral testimony you have to be able to back at least some of that which meant that the kind of secondary and tertiary research i had to do to uh, excavate the details that they were talking about was immense which meant that i was um i mean i became a master of like archival research for for a little bit and when you're working on fiction there is something um, i mean there's something quite liberating about it but the other thing you realize is that nobody really cares about all that research except for you Right. So when you're when you're saying something is is history, that's one thing because you have to prove it all. But when you're putting it down as a as a fictional story or a historical uh, historical novel, no one cares. I just care about the story. So I think that I had to like shed so many tropes that I had cultivated so possessively, and it's very hard. And I know that I'm talking about this, and it's sounding ridiculous because you're like, it's just a story. What's the big deal? But how much information is too much information and it was really hard for me to let go of things because the thing is i'm also a field researcher which means that i rely so much on visuals i walk into a room i want to write about the room the room is there for me i know that the walls are maroon i know that the sofa is white i know that the person is wearing a green turban this is a horrible like color scheme here by the way but if i if i'm creating something from from nothing i need to know does the room have round walls does the room have square walls is there an alcove in the room is there an agarbatti burning in the room is a person wearing a turban at all what is the accent that the person is speaking in okay what does that mean for him historically and like i know these details are really stupid and i know they're so insignificant because when one is reading a book they take so many things for granted you know when you're reading a novel you're like yeah of course okay great but these are the details that really like weighed me down which is why you would say method writing because i need to know if the person is from x village in haryana what does that sound like can i do that accent what would he sound like does he have a hoarse voice how old is he what would he have experienced and even in my head when i'm saying this it's like no one cares about these details but they all fit into the story somehow but you need to know them 
Yeah. You need to know them because what if someone asks you the backstory of this character and you're like, mm. actually, I don't know. But I guess it makes so much sense because like when you're breathing and living that character who you have like understood so well, you can describe it so well for your reader and which is why it's important. I suppose, I mean, it's, it's a bit like even if I'm, I'm talking right now, it's a bit embarrassing to be, uh, <laughs> to be admitting all these things because they seem so... Um, this, is, this seems so like small and like you know the little little details and, and I can imagine my notebooks where I've written all this and I know I know that the story is richer for it but it is a lot of effort to get that kind of detail and you know just coming back to your question about the visual and the written again because when you show someone a photograph or a painting or an image they're immediately on the same page as you like you're seeing it you're seeing yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. It's also the difference between film and book. Mm-hmm. They're seeing everything. And a lot of things are taken for granted because you're sharing that image. When you're putting something in a book, it has to be a lot more detailed because people have to make the effort to arrive at the landscape. You're not just like giving it to them. You're saying, here's the path. These are the details. Furnish your imagination. That's what you're saying to your reader. And you hope that you arrive at the same landscape as they do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, what I can say about the second book is that it, it has a little bit to do with partition. It has to do with the Indian soldiers in World War I. Um, it has to do a lot with Lahore. But I'll wait for my publisher to announce more about that. <laughs> well, we're all looking forward to it. I can assure you that. I'm assuming that you're a collector. And... Um, if you could speak about like one of your most prized collections, something you collected over the years that you're proud of and possessive of. On the contrary, I'm not. Really? I would imagine I'm, like you're like hoarding yes, things. You know, like, yes, you know. I uh, it does come across like that. Like, no, <laughs> but actually, um, actually, I'm not. I'm incredibly uh, minimal. Uh, the only thing that I have uh, possessively collected over the years is books, obviously. Okay. Uh, but many people have that collection. Um, but I'm, I'm very much like, if I don't have need for this, throw it or donate it. That's impressive. That is uh But I think that one thing I have collected over the last couple of years is uh, traditional itar. Mm. Um, I have a very big collection of that, and I, I always buy uh, from Delhi, from Kannauj, from Lahore, from Hyderabad, uh, Lucknow. Uh, I've always bought um, Karachi also. Uh, that's one thing like it comes to mind immediately. But I'm not a collector of any sort. I'll take care of something if it's given to me and that's more than often the case that someone in the family says you keep this now but I am not like I don't collect stones or like I don't collect you know the absurd collections my grandfather my my maternal grandfather I remember when I was a kid he used to collect newspapers and uh, national geographics and I remember growing up um, with stacks like stacks taller than me but I, I'm not like that. I'm, I'm very much, uh, very minimal and very much like uh, keeping things tidy and in order and don't need, don't keep. Can I ask what your favorite fragrance is in the Itra collection? I'm uh, absolutely um, biased to jasmine. Oh. 
Okay. Hmm. The jasmine from Madura in South India is uncomparable. It. Um, I have a friend, Janvi Nandan, who makes a beautiful perfume. She has a label called the Perfume Library. She makes a beautiful jasmine perfume mm-hmm. called Absolute. Now, uh, from the Madurai jasmine, and it's like it's sublime. It's like magic. Um, I just want to end also by um, asking you a very like obviously strange sort of question. But if you could go back in time, uh, what moment in history would you want to relive? Um, you know, it's funny because it's not the first time that I've been asked this question on a podcast. Oh, okay. So not the only <laughs> one who's strange. <laughs> No, no. Um, in fact, I was asked to choose three moments in the in the other. That's called travels through time. Um, but okay, so this is a great question. I would like to go back to when Sir Cyril Ratcliffe came to India to draw the partition line, and I would like to accompany him for those uh, those next five weeks that he would spend in India, because I mean, like. It, it's just no matter how much you research his papers, his mm-hmm. journal, his, mm-hmm. his assistance papers, but just like, how did you draw that line? And I mean, I am someone who's very sympathetic to the character of Cyril Ratcliffe. So um, there are many things that people would attribute him for that I wouldn't agree with, because anyone in that position would have had a difficult time. But I think I would like to accompany him for five weeks to know what he did in India, how he felt, um, you know, be his like personal oral historian. That's, that's yes. a wonderful answer because it's it's a very specific moment in history. That's well, it is because you, you keep thinking like how can one line affect the lives of millions of people yeah. very specifically and differently? And that's sort of the other thing that we need to realize that the partition is an event of versions. And no one experienced it the same way. Till date, my grandmother and my younger sister debate about what truly happened on their migration journey because they both have varying accounts of the same journey. Which means that obviously memory works very differently for people. But with Sarah Radcliffe, I mean, here is a man who comes from, from England, never having been to India before. He's not a map maker. He's not a geologist. But he comes purely because he has no experience in India because he would make an unbiased... I don't know, an unbiased line maker. And he comes here and he gets completely thrown into the squabbles of Indian people. And the British are now appealing for certain cities to be in certain places. And he has to take religious, irrigational, geological, um, all sorts of things into consideration. And I just can't imagine anyone being in that situation. I can't imagine it. But he did it, and um, and we, we know what becomes of him after he did it. But I, I I really would like to understand the psyche of the man in those five weeks that he was in India. Five weeks? Can you imagine? Yeah. Like just that much time to sort of decide the fate of so many people. It's yes, and how could person have done this out of duty? I mean, and also he, he rejected his fee at the end, right? Because he just, he saw what it had done to the Punjab. And he saw what it had done to Bengal. And he, I don't think that he could take it on his moral conscience. There is a, a lovely film uh, called This Bloody Line. Uh, and it's, it's about Ratcliffe and his wife, but it's about the day 
when when the poem partition comes out by w h orden in the paper and of course it's it's a fictional conversation between uh, sir ratcliffe and his wife but he's trying to he's blind by then he's completely blind because he has cataract and you can see in the film his eyes are completely white and his wife is reading out the poem and he's trying to say that you were not there you didn't understand what it was like and he's trying to explain to her what it felt like how can you just divide someone and he says that imagine we're sitting in this room and i and i draw a line between us and she says well then i better come over to your side of the line and i mean i'm talking about this right now and i have goosebumps because it's it's so sad it's just a 10 minute uh, the 10 minute film this bloody line but it is so sad and i think that he is a highly misunderstood person and anyone would be in that circumstance so it's worth investigating what he felt and how he he dealt with things and people Anjil also heads the Museum of Material Memory, a digital repository of material culture of the Indian subcontinent. You can follow her on Instagram and order her book to learn more. Both of these are linked in the description. Stay home, stay safe and don't forget to subscribe to Designed for Good. <laughs>